All right, good morning. It is uh, Saturday, August 6th, 2016. Pete, you got to keep the volume down. Oh, okay, it's, it's, it's 189. 189, there you go. <laughs> 189, okay. we got, we got to protect the hearing of some of our, uh, of our listeners. Yeah. They're at a point in life where they've lost quite a bit of yeah. it already. Yeah, yeah. Me included. Yeah, 189. All right, well, we're glad you woke up, Pete. Thank you for controlling the enthusiasm. This is Solder Smoke 189. Good to see you. A lot to talk about. Um, first, I thought we'd start with a little bit of travelogue. Not mine, but uh, the travels of a, of a person familiar to the um, to the listeners to this show. The, uh, ooh, that's awesome guy. Yeah. On the road. Ooh. Big time. Out in the world. He's uh, traveling through Europe. Wow. Been out there, been out there for two weeks. And uh, comes home tomorrow, so we're we're gonna be happy to see him. He's been all over. He's been in uh, in Berlin, been oh, in Amsterdam, man. been in Prague, traveling around on a train with a backpack. He's been having a great time. It's I'm, I'm really proud of him. He's done a done a good job in getting himself across the uh, the continent there, back and forth a couple of times. So uh, we'll give you more details of that and some perhaps some pictures on on an upcoming uh, episode. Um, and. I got really good news. Real good news. Gonzalo. Oh. Little, little Gonzalo that we talked about oh, yeah. uh, a while back, almost a year ago, I guess, uh, who this is uh, the, the child of uh, my wife's cousin. And the little guy uh, had leukemia. Well, and they had to bring him to, to the States for, for treatment from the Dominican Republic. The family, they've all been up here getting treatment for him for almost a year now and he's it's been a real ordeal but uh thank god they got the they got the all clear last week oh and that's terrific bill that's it's amazing. terrific and i we got a really good picture of gonzalo i'll put it up on the uh on the page when i post this uh this blog post so you'll see little gonzalo there he's doing great and we'll be heading back to the dominican republic in a month or so and so a big success and thanks really thanks to everybody uh in the in the solder smoke community who who chipped in and and thanks for all the good wishes and it's been it's been great. So um, anyway, Pete, that is some good news to start. I want to tell you one other thing. I you you, you sometimes kind of accuse me of being kind of a luddite. No, no, I don't do that. No. And no. I, and there's there's some validity to these claims, and there really is. <laughs> I, I, I you guys didn't hear it, but I just uh, regaled Pete with a long tirade about my software problems this morning with uh, various bits of software that we use to produce this this podcast but uh my wife and i were in the mall she got me to the mall which was was, was an accomplishment Ooh. in itself we were in the mall and she said i want you to check out this virtual reality thing and in the mall in the windows store i guess they're trying to use it as as kind of an add-on to windows 10 machines they have the virtual reality goggles and they let you try it out. They, they stand you in this little kind of miniature kind of a boxing ring and they put the, the goggles on you and they ask you, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to the bottom of the ocean, tops of the mountains and everything else? My wife told me go with the ocean one. So, okay, they fired up the program and I got to tell you, I was impressed. This was really pretty cool. Um, you sit there, you got these goggles on and you know, if you look up, it's like you're underwater looking up. It's the same. It's the same thing. You look up, you see fish swimming above you. You can see the surface shimmering. 
And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see something coming, and it's a it's a whale, a <laughs> big one. And he comes right at you, sails right past you. This was really pretty cool. You can, you walk around, and as you walk, you're walking around on the deck of a, of a pirate ship at the bottom of the ocean. Wow. And it really does, it's the same sensation, it's the same visual effect that you get when you're walking. And you have to, they have to have these little ropes there, because if not, you'll start walking off into the mall, <laughs> you know. Because you think you're on the on the surface sure. of a ship. A lot of applications. This is going to be big, really big. Did, did you get so, any motion cues from it, like like you get seasick or anything like that? No, I didn't. I, I didn't get any of that. No, and they didn't even have sound turned on. I, I guess because they don't they, in the mall, like they, they don't want to completely lose contact with the person. But if you had headphones on and they had it, it had sounds uh, linked to it. I mean, it was clear that this is just the beginning of this stuff, but. But really, really amazing, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. So there you go, Pete, on the cutting edge again. Well, well, you know, as you were describing that, I keep thinking about things that I've seen in my past work experience. Back in the 70s, back in the 70s, uh, people were doing things with virtual reality, not necessarily with the putting on, you know, headgear on and what have you. But I can remember when I worked uh, for one of the aerospace companies, they, they built these visual flight simulators that you sit in a cockpit, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. they had a TV screen in there, and it's just like you're flying the airplane. And someone was demonstrating to me once, and I get, I'm very prone to motion sickness. I started to get sick. <laughs> <laughs> I started to get sick because it really, you know, you could feel it. And that, that's why I asked, did, did, did they mention anything about it that, that people may get uh, – I guess I, I know they've had problems with it and they were working on it, but I didn't. And maybe because it was it was really pretty high quality, mm-hmm. so it, it didn't. No, it didn't bother me at all. And I, oh, and I'm, I, I I'm kind of susceptible to that too. So there may be virtual reality in your future. <laughs> yeah, <Pete>. yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you, you, and you kind of I, I think uh, suggested that it might be applicable to ham radio, and you could have like a virtual contest. Yes, 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 uh, yes. I, I, I'm interested in this because I, 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 I could in virtual reality be be the winner of the the, the yeah, sweepstakes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, oh, well they great. sort of have that with Whisper, you know. I know, I know. Whisper, like <laughs> you know, it's it's like, you know, you go you leave your whisper rig on. You come home at night and say, "Well, look, look at all the people I contacted." You know, you know, I, I when I was I was into whisper for a while, and I remember I had one email exchange with uh, with Wes Hayward on this, and Wes kind of, I could tell that he was he was skeptical, and <laughs> and then he said, the question he asked was. Uh, how do you know when you start having fun? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. It's true. Yeah. It's it's way too. It's it's a very kind of antisocial mode. You're not actually talking to anybody. It's yeah. just, yeah. I, and you know, I, we, we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but that's what we do. Yeah. You know, the other thing I was thinking about. You know, they, they've coming. They're coming up with all these applications where you're running a station from your from your iPhone, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of that. And now I've seen, and this is kind of mind blowing. That they're they're doing for a fee, you can connect with your iPhone to some distant superstation, right? Yep. But they but they charge you like I don't know five cents a, five cents a minute or something like that. So think about it. You if you if you started hooking up, if you say okay, well you know we're going to make a certain investment, and we're going to get operators from all over the states or wherever all over the world. And we're going to buy time on this super station on some super rare island. 
Um, and we're all just going to sit around our house and, and just run these things. Then you can get some automatic kind of QSO program going. You know, we're... <laughs> yeah, you're there. You're there. You're, you're there, but you're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it is time for the traditional bench report. Ooh, yes, the bench report. And Pete, you, you have been doing some great things there. Yeah. <laughs> You have. It's really been amazing. So tell us. You go well, first. Well, What's well, happening well, for, on the... First of, on I, the... I want our listeners to know, notice what color shirt I got on. He's got a blue <laughs> shirt. Yeah. But it's not, you know, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not Giuliano Blue. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been in contact with the folks from Sherwin-Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, the, big, they, the big paint yeah, manufacturer. Yeah. I've alerted to them to this business opportunity, and I'm getting a piece <laughs> of it. Pretty soon, Giuliano Blue is going to be the... Yeah. People are going to be walking into... Do you have any of that Giuliano Blue? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, you buy a can of paint, okay? And how much paint can you put in a small little front panel? Uh, not much, you know? Right. So pretty soon you got this can and you feel compelled to say, well, that thing's going to dry out, you know? Got to use gotta it. Got to use it. So I, I've been dragging radios out. And actually, for the longest time, I've avoided painting any of my projects because I sucked at it. I mean, <laughs> you'd get the paint to run and it looked like it looked terrible. Drool, drool into the rotary yeah, encoder. Yeah, it looked terrible. And then suddenly now I discovered, uh, I accidentally I discovered how to do it. And so then you say, okay, let's paint that one. Let's paint that one. I think I got about mm, seven or eight radios now <laughs> that are painted blue. And, and I've tried some really unique things like, Maybe a blue front panel and a black case, or maybe a, a a black front panel and a blue case. You know, they all look Ooh. a little different. So maybe I have to take a picture and put it on the blog of all the radios that are not all of them. We we got several. <laughs> Send us all of them. That'd be really yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, one of our one of our uh, our friends, I, I forget who wrote in with this, but said that that you are are making a contribution, an important contribution to the fight against global warming because the world gets a bit cooler every time you turn one of your radios blue. Cool blue, yeah. Cool blue. Well, you know, it's, um, it is amazing because um, you can, by just adding a little paint, it dramatically changes the project. I mean, it, it cosmetically, you know, it doesn't yeah. change the performance of, of the radio, but cosmetically, it doesn't look like a hunk of junk. <laughs> you know, right. it, it looked, ooh, yeah, you know, cool blue. So, and I, I, I far more than you have a long way to go in this area. So, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for that uh, Sherwin Williams announcement yeah. of the, uh, the, the sale on Giuliano Blue. Uh, I have received several, actual several inquiries. What is the real name of the paint? <laughs> <laughs> and it's Rustoleum. 2X Satin Oasis Blue, available at Home Depot. Rustoleum 2X, 2X Satin Oasis Blue. Blue. Yeah, and the 2X means it's both a paint and a primer, so it's all in one. So it's one shot. You know, in other words, you don't have to prime anything. You just make sure the surface is clean and have at it. I, I, I should tell you, the first time I did it, you know, you you worry a little bit, so I took it out in the backyard, and I put a a, a chunk of cardboard down and I oversprayed and I had oasis blue grass. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, I, that's, I think that, I think that's a bit of a trend I, in California, figured, isn't it? That's what you guys are doing out there. Cause you don't have any water, right? Yeah. So I figured, well, you know, first time the grass gets cut, it's still there. <laughs> you know, 
people, kids, the kids have blue hair. Yeah. Now you got blue grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bluegrass. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Bluegrass. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, you know, it, it's added a whole new dimension. And now when I do a project, I think, oh, okay, what, what, I had to paint it. You know, I had to paint. Now I feel a little more comfortable about being able to do it. And then and it adds a whole new dimension to, to the project. It kind of looks finished. It is. It is. It, it, yeah, it adds that kind of professional touch. Well, yeah. your, your rigs always looked really good. I mean, your rigs always, to me, looked like, you know, that, you know, they, they were, they were, they were close to commercial. I remember a couple of times I, I was kidding you that, you know, it's, it soon people are going to start thinking that you're running, you know, appliances over there and <laughs> they're just a kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> and whereas you take a look at some of the stuff that I'm running, that, I'm in no that, danger. That I'm look, in no danger of that accusation. That would look cool blue. I think I'm, I'm pointing at the, my little homebrew, uh, uh, Benton Harbor lunchbox uh, receiver. What? What? When, when I when I finish mine though, I always end up with a few extra holes in the front panel, and I I usually get some um, a black duct tape and put like yeah. <laughs> a patch Bondo, over it. Bondo, yeah. you got to get some Bondo in there. So you can Bondo, get. yeah. yeah. Well, by uh, the way, while you mentioned that something earlier you said and something that you mentioned in the podcast here a while back, um, all came together. You, I think in a recent podcast you said you started that radio when billy was one year old back in 1998 and i'm thinking here he is a young young adult traveling europe (laughs) you know i know time has moved forward well no there's a lot of time moving forward i'm sure you have the same sensation you know i have uh my the sot the weller soldering gun that i have you know i got that when i was 14 wow it's it's you know it's it's held together. There's quite a bit of super glue and duct tape holding it together, but I still use it. So yeah, that's the that's the thing about you know, and of course the Drake 2B and the Halicrafters HT 37. They've been here for a long time. So I think that is one of the things about the hobby is you get uh, a lot of continuity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, yeah, I mean, yeah. it just struck me as as you said that. So so what's also happening on the bench uh, in addition to me painting the world blue <laughs> is is I've been working on my LD Moss amplifier. And, I, you know, this has been a really excellent project for me because um, previously in using the Arduino, it was taking somebody's code, you know, and say, okay, plug it in there and make this thing work. And you may have to do some refinements, but this is something where I started with a clean sheet of paper. And I've discovered some really interesting things. First of all, there's, and I've said this frequently, there's a tremendous amount of power in the Arduino. And I mean, it's really worth taking the time to start with a little project and seeing what you can add to it. And then you discover certain things. And one of the one of the things that uh, is the feature of this project is that I'm using a keypad to, to control everything. So, uh, you know, you push one switch and it starts the whole thing up, starts the power supply. You push another switch and you can turn it off. Uh, you can uh, select uh, low-pass filters uh, do that all with all with a keypad and I mean to me that's a real power is instead of having all these toggle switches and things of that sort and having a, a 20 by 4 uh, LCD display you can pack a lot of information in there or things that change so I've learned I've learned quite a few things and then you discover certain things that you just think would work one way but unfortunately don't work that way for one of the things uh, I have essentially a remote start via the keypad of this big 48 volt 35 amp power supply <laughs> i mean that's a, uh, so, so this thing starts up really cool and and so i wanted to build some 
protective features in there. Of course, that's where tubes are a little more forgiving uh, versus solid state. I mean, you can smoke some solid state devices really fast. And and you have some history. Oh, yes, I do. I do. We, let's, we have to face I, it. I do. And so you, you want to build some protective circuitry in there. So I had this uh, emergency shutdown. So you uh, hit uh, uh, key number uh, zero and, and it'll it supposedly shuts the power supply off and it does cut the voltage to the main supply. I got a couple of hockey pucks in there, solid state switch. <laughs> I was just thinking maybe you should have like one of these lanyards, like when you're on the treadmill machine yeah. or, or the lawnmower so that if you fall off, it, yeah. it pulls it yeah. out. <laughs> but here, here's the problem. I ran. If you touch that 48 volts and get blasted across the room. <laughs> here's the problem I ran into. The supply shuts off, but the voltage doesn't. There's this significant amount of time because of the way they're using a switching power supply, that the decay is such that it's 48 volts for a couple of seconds. I mean, the oh, main power is cut. I, I see that. I see that all the time on the uh, the power supply yeah. that you recommended for the EB63A. Yeah. So the it it, it hangs in there for quite yeah, a while. So I'm saying, and then it'll take an appreciable time to go from 48 volts down to zero volts. Well, you just smoke this $200 <laughs> RF device in the process. So then uh, I'm posted some information on the blog and someone says you ought to look at uh, at this guy and there's a, a ham by the name of uh, Jim W6PQL that uh, first of sells complete amplifiers but sells a lot of power uh, components uh, he'll sell you low pass filter boards he'll sell you the RF board uh, a lot of really good ancillary devices and one of the things he sells is this power FET switch so that it, the minute that you, you essentially have this power FET in line with the 48 volts DC. As a matter of fact, he has three versions of the kit, 12, 24, and 48. So depending which resistors you put in there, it depends how it's, it's powered off the rail. So if you punch that button, it closes. That FET is off. So it, it, the main supply can decay down, but you've essentially shut the power off to the amplifier. And the kit is... 15 bucks. I mean, this, this is really inexpensive and that, that's kind of cheap insurance. So there's, there's things that you can do. And suddenly now I'm thinking, why can't you use the same switch in all other places? Not just an LD Moss amp. I mean, if you really want to cut the power to something and I had never used power fets like that, I, I'd never, you, you know, really thought about, I, I said, oh, let's use a relay or a switch or something like that. And, and yet, uh, and it also has some features like you can enable it f from a signal from the Arduino, but then he has an emergency shutdown feature in there. If you close, the, there's a there's a diode to ground. If you put that diode to ground, you can be turning that switch on and off. It'll never turn on that power fit. So that's wow. a really good protective device. And the circuit diagram is on is on the internet on his web wow. website. So I mean. You could just say, okay, I'll, I'll build my own. I won't buy his kit. You know, it's got a few, uh, they're all surface mount hardware. You can do it with discrete components. But this is really cheap insurance. <laughs> I mean. That is right. It, and, you know, you know, it's, it's great that we're finally using the power FETs for what they were intended yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. We were using them as RF power yeah, amplifiers. Yeah. It's an IRF 510. Yeah, I mean, this, this little uh, uh, power FET is good for like 50, 60 amps. So wow. so now I want to pose a question, because then it, it uh, I noticed he 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 had it kind of mounted on a heatsink. So someone out in podcast land, I need some help. 
Because then I, I, I was smart enough to ask the question. I said, okay, how big of a heat sink do you need? And and so he he uh, said, well, if you look at the uh, the on resistance is in the milliohms on this power fed, which means the voltage drop is pretty small. But but at 30 amps or 40 amps, you got Ohm's law <laughs> equals yeah. IR. I mean, you still have you have a dissipation. And so he said 24 watts. So I can see how to get the calculation, but how do you translate that to a heatsink? How do you calculate what's a 24-watt heatsink? You know, usually I look in the box and say, oh, yeah, that looks big enough. I know, I know. And then when you build it, you put your hand on yeah. it and you say, how hot is it going to get? Yeah, if it's, if it's relatively cool, big enough, you know. Well, you know, Doug Dumont actually had a rule. He said that if you put your finger on it and you couldn't stand the heat, you know, if it got too uncomfortably hot, then you didn't have enough heat sink. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> how do you calculate the size of the heat sink? I, I know how many watts it has to dissipate. It's 24. But how do you calculate other than look in the box and say, yeah, that one looks big enough. All right. Now, listen, I want to say if we come up, if we develop a formula for this, I want it to be called Giuliano's Law. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. So it'll be the ratio of, you know, the conversion factor from watts to square inches of heat sink, yeah. or square centimeters. Yeah, yeah. Let's be modern. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I'm i sure there is something, in it, and the, the problem I have is so many times you go into the Internet and you look at this data, and it's a 15-page report, and suddenly you got all this math, and you say, look, <laughs> just tell me the size of the heat sink. A simple nomograph, you know, saying, yeah. you know, somebody wants uh, this is the size, this is the square area you need. So um, th I think that'd be useful, and I think I think that would prevent me from smoking devices. <laughs> you know, and we want to we want to prevent yeah, that. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, now I want to share one more thing on the bench, and then we'll turn it over to you, Bill. And it's a, uh, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of emails, just like I got a lot of emails. See, someone will say, "How do you do this? You know, how would you do this?" And some of these things I've never done, but they certainly are thought-provoking. And uh, this goes to the SI-5351, okay? Yeah. So, matter of fact, you had a QSO with a guy. The guy that asked the question is is Mike, WA3O, in Monroe, Pennsylvania. I do. Yeah, so you've got to talk about that a little bit. But he posed the question to me. He's building a simple CW transmitter and a direct conversion receiver, Okay. So he asked, how can I use an SI-5351 with a CW transmitter and a direct conversion receiver? And, of course, you're not doing any uh, – you, you have no offset, so it's a direct frequency, although he's going to add a 700 hertz offset for the receive. So how can you do it? And uh, I've given this a little bit of thought, and we, we've been communicating back and forth, but one of the things on the SI-5351 is you could use one of the clocks – for, for the transmit frequency, and then the right. second clock, you can you can even you you're not forced just to put a specific offset in there. You could actually have a toggle switch that says make it plus seven hundred, or make it minus yeah. seven hundred. So yeah. you can't have them run simultaneously because you're going to hear clock zero. If clock two is the receive, you're going to hear clock zero, which is seven hundred right. away. You're you're going to hear a constant tone in there. So there is a functionality. And I had never used this before, but actually uh, uh, my friend Ben, KK6FUT, has done – he had an article in um, uh, QRP Quarterly building a, uh, a beacon transmitter. 
Right. And uh, also another article in QRP Quarterly, uh, uh, Preston Douglas, WJ2V, had, oh, had yeah. an old uh, old boat anchor transmitter, and he wanted to do something like that. Actually, there's an enable, disable command that you can enable one of the clocks just in the code. You can say either enable it or disable it. So it's a, a line of code. So you could be generating CW by saying, okay, enable it create a dit disable it enable it create a a da or disable it and it, like full qsk yeah yeah so i mean there's there's some amazing things that could be done as a matter of fact uh i sent i sent mike some references uh ben and i in a series of uh articles we wrote for qrp quarterly called the cw center and yeah. we show how you can either use a a side swiper or, or keyboard uh -huh. something in yeah. a couple lines of code <laughs> And you can take that that keyboard, and and whatever's generated off the keyboard, you can create, put it on, and put it off. So I mean, you, you yeah. have code snippets in there. So taking a direct conversion receiver, simple, simple, right. simple way to do it. Uh, simple, you know, two or three transistor CW transmitter, and put the Arduino in there. And next thing you know, you have a QSK <laughs> radio. Wow, that's so, really cool. You know, and that's and that that. The business about the, the offset for CW was one of the reasons that I always thought that when you're talking about direct conversion receivers and turning them into a transceiver, that was one of the things that made a double sideband phone rig even a little bit simpler because you didn't have to worry about any kind of frequency right. shift. Of course, you didn't want any. You wanted the transmitter to be exactly on the same frequency as the receiver. So a lot of times I would just leave the oscillator running. And, you know, have the same one on receive and transmit. But you can't do that on CW or the, guy, the other guy's not going to hear you. Yeah. You're going to be at zero beat. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a bit of a complex. It's, it's ironic because there's a complexity in there with the CW rig that you don't find in the phone right, rig. Right. Absolutely. So anyway, I, I just share that with you is that we need to we need to look at some of the tools we have. Now, that may violate one of your principles. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, I got this thing in there. Well, Pete, you know, my, my attitude these days is live and let live. <laughs> okay. You know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in it, but, yeah. Yeah, so to me, uh, I mean, uh, just on paper and, and two minutes worth of noodling, looks like this could be done very nicely. And this may open up a whole new new world to, to get people to, to try some things. And, and a lot of the code exists, you know, so it's not you'd have to sit there and invent it yourself. So I, I think there's some real opportunities to take even some simple approaches like a direct conversion receiver and a two or three transistor transmitter. And then you put the SI5351 with it and boom, there you are. You know, you've got a really, really nice. Bob's your uncle. Bob's your, and stable. You know, very stable. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. All right. No, that's 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 really pretty cool. You you are you are uh, you know first turning things blue, building new solid state amplifiers and fancy switching systems, and now you know QSK and offset with SI fifty three fifty one. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Why not? Okay. That that's my bench report. I of course am wallowing at the far end. <laughs> How's the S thirty eight E bill? Of the technological. <laughs> How's the S thirty eight E bill? <laughs> no, well, we'll talk about the SA thirty eight E in a minute. But uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, I, I kind of, I'm, 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 I'm interested. Lately, lately, I'm interested in making RF the old fashioned way. 
you know, coils and capacitors. Oh, yeah. You remember those things. You oh, remember yeah. the oh, coils with the squirrely, you know, yeah, curly yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Capacitors with those bread slicer yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking with Pete here because every once in a while when I'm, when I'm in going through what we call a tale of woe, with a with a device, I'll send him a message, and I I, I sent I, he asked me how it was going, and I said I was having trouble with uh, the variable variable frequency oscillator, the VFO, and I was having trouble getting it stable, getting it on frequency and all that, and it, he just came back and he said, "Well, we have something for that." <laughs> <laughs> you see, you know, he seems like a, a very nice guy, you know, <laughs> and, and most of the time he is, but every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I'm biting my face. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. But anyway, okay, the project that I'm working on and what I have on the bench is a very standard, seemingly very simple, a variable frequency oscillator. And this I this this project was launched really it, it all started at the um, Vienna Wireless Society's uh, Winterfest Hamfest. Armand WA1UQO and I were going through the Hamfest like we always do. And we came across an HRO receiver, and I guess I, I made that kind of sound. I kind of, I kind of made like a ooh sound. And Armin said to me, "If you want one of those dials, I have one." But then I thought, well, I don't want to ask for it unless I need it, unless I'm going to use it. So I didn't say anything. And then on the last podcast, I think I I mentioned it, and you said something like, "Get it, you need it." Yeah. And Armand heard that, and the next thing you know, the box arrives in the mailbox. And man, this thing is beautiful. I, I you know, I've, I've fooled around with a lot of reduction drives, and I, you sent me a Collins uh, velvet vernier one time. They're really nice, uh, uh, national velvet vernier. And uh, but this thing, I must say, this this looks like the reduction drive that won World War II. Bulletproof. It really does. Bulletproof. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's 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 big. It looks like it, you know. It looks like they they pulled it out of a, a submarine or something like that. And and the and you know, it's very solid and really great. And you open it up, and the innards of it even look great. It's, it's this amazing looking gearbox. It looks almost like the the transmission for a small car or something in there. It's great stuff. It's got this great fant- fantastic dial on it. It's got a, it, and it's got like a a twenty to one reduction ratio. 20 to 1. So, I mean, you could, I, I had visions of really finding, finally tuning in there, you know, long, turn the dial, go to zero beat, you know, like that. And it's very, very smooth, really, really nice. So, okay, this is the first time I've ever decided to build a rig around the dial. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've done it around the filter. You get a filter, you think, oh, I'm going to build a, a rig around this filter or something like that. Or maybe a set of transistors or, or a tube. Or a chassis that looks like it'd be a good base. I did that with the Benton Harbor lunchbox. Well, this thing that Armin sent me, and Armin, thanks again, really caused me to think, okay, I'm going to build a whole receiver just around this dial. All right. Now, this is kind of an, I was thinking about this. This is an interesting approach. When you're building something, I know your habit is to build the audio portions of it first. That's generally your idea. I, I don't. My, I, I, in, in almost all the projects that I've done recently, my first step is to build the the oscillator, the oscillator that's going to be at the core. Because I always think of that as sort of like the the heart of the project, the, kind of the beating heart of whatever we're building. And and whether the whether it's an SI fifty three fifty one or a 
an AD9850, or in my case, a VXO or a VFO, I usually want to get that first and get that done and get it stable. Because once that's done, then I think I can build the rest of it kind of around that fairly easily. So the first step I took was to build this, uh, this VFO. I wanted to build a VFO for, my idea was not a transceiver, but just a kind of a, I started out thinking of a general coverage receiver. Probably because I was having a little bit of fun, not too much, but a little bit of fun with the SA S38E listening on shortwave bands, you know? Let's not get carried away. It was kind of fun, but it was kind of painful too, you know? It was a pig. With lipstick. There you go, right? And it, it, I think it needed more lipstick. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But anyway, um, I got, got me interested in I like to have something I could listen to the shortwave bands on. I like 40 meters. I want to listen to the 40 meter band. So I started thinking, wow, what I'll do is I'll build a receiver that has a VFO with a really wide range, you know? And since this this uh, reduction, this, this, this HRO dial has a 20 to 1 reduction ratio, that should be okay. I should be able to get like a really long range. You know, hell, you got to turn the thing 10 times to go from one end of the cap to the other. And so I first, I went and I started looking around for... Um, for different VFO designs. I decided to, to do a little bit of research and, and read up on the, the, uh, the VFO literature before I started building things. And I read through solid state design for the radio amateur, experimental methods in RF design. I went back to DeMoz books. And finally, I found one that I really like. There's a very simple, really simple little uh, VFO circuit. I think it's on like page 34 of solid state design. And uh, Wes and Doug put it in there and they, 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 they cite it as an example of how simple uh, a VFO could be and, and how stable it could be if you take care in producing it. It's just, it's got a little FET, like an, uh, uh, an MPF 102, something like that. It's got a, a, an air wound coil uh, and it's got the variable cap, a couple of bypass caps, a diode, a resistor, that's it. And with that simplicity, they got really remarkable stability. So I figured, what the heck, I'm going to use basically that circuit, match it up with, uh, with Armin's uh, HRO dial, and then, but then follow all of the, the tribal knowledge, all of the, the wisdom about what it takes to make a really stable VFO. Because I've made a lot of, sta- a lot of VFOs, none of them are really, really stable. And I figured, okay, let's put the extra work in it and make it really stable. So I mean, I think I really went the extra mile. I, uh, I took the, the frequency determining components, the, the air wound coil. I got a nice variable cap of the appropriate size. And I put them in their own separate box. I mean, this is mostly to keep them away from heat, heat right? The, the, the transistor and all the associated components for the VFO, actually for the oscillator circuit, is in a separate little... Altoids tin box outside the box for the coil and the cap, but close by so the leads aren't long. And then I have a third Altoids tin that has the buffer and the amplifier uh, that comes after the oscillator circuit. I got the whole thing really nailed down very, very well on a, on a piece of uh, wood, that, that, that grilling plank that I picked up at Whole Foods. You know, the radio gods told me oh, to buy yeah, that. Yeah. And they were right. So anyway, it's, it's all coming together. It looks really great, man. It looks like, again, it looks like something that you'd, you'd find in a, you know, 
Oh, something something to do with World War II. It's very solid, very kind of heavily constructed and everything. I've got the, the oscillators running. I abandoned I abandoned the idea of a truly wide-ranging VFO because I found that I had a VFO that was going from like uh, like 3 megahertz up to like 15 megahertz. And that was just way too much. What that meant was the slightest change in that variable capacitor produced a really big frequency change in swing, frequency. Yeah. Yeah, so I played around with the cap values and and uh, and and put a parallel capacitor in there, with, parallel to the variable cap, and I decided to compromise. And I decided that it would be okay if I had a tuning range that went from, say, six megahertz, to like eight megahertz, because that would allow me to listen to a lot of good shortwave stations between six and seven. It would allow me to listen to the forty meter band and a bit above it. And I and I changed it, and I have the the. Uh, the tuning range where I want it now. But I then I discovered a new old problem. And and, and you know this is this is I guess this is the kind of problem that comes up when you're working on it on a project like this. And I, I want to ask the uh, uh, the listeners for suggestions on how to deal with this. It's something that when I first and I, and I know Armin wasn't aware of it and and I might be doing something wrong, but um, here's the problem. The the um, when I hook up the the beautiful reduction drive to the VFO, I notice that it tunes everything. It's all very smooth. But there's the only I guess the best way I could describe it at first is to say there seems to be excessive play in it. It's not backlash, but here's what happens. I'll I like when I'm playing with a VFO. I don't. I don't only. I keep a frequency counter on it because that's useful. But it's also useful to listen to it. So I'll take a general coverage receiver, and if I have the the VFO tuned to 7.2 megahertz, I'll turn the receiver on and turn the BFO on. Right. So I can now hear the tone of the signal coming from the VFO, and as I move the the HRO dial, it, it, there's a smooth progression, but when I get it at like, like at a certain tone. Okay, I've got it. Say there's a, a 700 hertz tone coming out of the receiver. If I move that the dial a little bit, if I wiggle the dial just back and forth, just slightly, there's no change in the tone. In other words, I'm moving the dial, but the gearbox is not causing the capacitor to move even enough for me to hear a change in the tone. It's almost like you have to move it a little bit more significantly before you'll hear a change in the tone. And that shouldn't be that way. It should be that the slightest movement of that of that dial produces some noticeable change in frequency. It's almost as if, and you mentioned this to me before, it's almost as if the gears are a little bit loose and there's excessive Slop play in, in there. the gears. Yeah, and um, so, I mean, I, I, I opened up the gearbox I didn't disassemble it. Some brave guys out there, uh, I think AA70E has torn this thing down, disassembled it, cleaned everything. But I opened it up. I, I cleaned out all the old grease. I cleaned it up pretty good. I re-lubed it. But it's still there. It's still, there's a problem. And, and it's that it seems like the whole gear mechanism is a little bit loose. I don't think it's worn. They don't look like, I look at the gears. You can't see that the gears are worn. But it's like they, they need to be tightened up a bit. Now, there's several different models of this thing out there. And I've seen people recommending that there's a spring in there that if you tighten the spring, it tightens up the whole gear mechanism. But mine doesn't seem to have a spring like that. 
and there's not you know there's not a lot on the internet about these things i mean they're i mean some of this i think some of these things are almost 70 years old now so um or, or older or older <laughs> yeah uh, uh, uh. so i mean and and when i opened it up I, I think i might have been the first one to open it up since it was manufactured but um Anyway, if anybody has any ideas on on how to how to get this thing going, because I really want to use it. I mean, again, the the whole project is built around Armin's uh, dial, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, yeah. I, I first of all, I think it's very, it, it it's really a great idea. I mean, that that dial just speaks volumes. I mean, you'd be sitting in front of that and turning it. Um, you know, I was thinking about how that problem was solved in the Arc Five. Uh, receivers and transmitters they actually used two gears uh, that that mated but between the two they had a, a spring built right into the gear face so that that you actually took the two gears and and offset them by one or two teeth and so when you put put that back in it removed the slop in other words those those gears were such that that it actually held them within the the teeth of the opposing gear. So I mean, there's nothing like that in the and uh, I think that's a Boston Gearworks. As a matter of fact, is is the gearbox. That's a you know National just mated that with a with a with a commercial gearbox. So unless you had something like that on the Arc Five, you'd be sitting there. You you'd you'd replicate exactly the problem you described. So in the Arc Fives, what they did is they they offset them a little bit on the teeth so that they'd always be tight in, in the opposing gear. So if if there's nothing like that or no way to adjust it, you're you're going to have a problem because you just put two gears up against each other. I I mean there's got to be room in those gears to move to the next tooth. So there's a little slop in there unless you can uh, adjust the the drag what I call the drag the drag on it. So this yeah. way that there's a resistance. As you tune it, you'll you'll get that incremental tuning. So you're not getting any resistance in there that that, that lets you do lets you move to the next tooth or the next increment. They do have a couple of springs in there, and the, they describe the placement of the springs in there as an effort to overcome what they describe as backlash, yeah. the backlash problem. But I looked, and my springs, I don't know whether they're they're in good shape or whether they've lost their spring the over spring, the course spring of the years. The spring constant may be uh, because there's so much wear on it. It didn't wear the gears, yeah. but it wore out the springs. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Yeah. I might I might have to open this up and, and do, do did, some surgery did, on it. Did you check? There's some, um, there's some boat anchor uh, websites, and one of them is national. Did you did you check that? Yeah, I've, I've looked. I've, I've done quite a bit of, you know, Googling, and I found some stuff there, but uh, nothing really is going to, that's really put me, I I'm looking for the easy solution. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking for the solution that doesn't require me to open this up and have the yeah. you know, the springs yeah. falling out and S- all the screws. Somewhere and in in the Midwest or somewhere up in New England, somebody knows the answer to that. I mean, I, I know I, there's somebody some, there. Somebody I know, there. I know. Oh yeah, you know this. And like, maybe they're going to hear this podcast and come to the rescue. Yeah. that often happens. I mean, I, when you were working on the uh, the the switching thing for the. Uh, for the for the FET amp, I was I was really amazed. Somebody some guy came in, and I remember sent you a message that was like with the right solution right yeah, there. Bang. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, anyway, I also learned a lot of we we talked about this too about a lot of history of the HRO and the receiver. What a what a fantastic project! And it's a reminder of James Millen. Yeah. 
what a what a genius! What a man who's kind of contrib- contributed to the uh, to the radio art. I really like you know people. It's I didn't know this, but the re- the, the name HRO. You know, it it started up when they you know when they, were, when they were doing a lot of these projects in the in the run up to the Second World War. They got there was a, a lot of demand to produce the the receivers very very quickly, and when they got an order at the company at National that was a hurry hurry order rush, they would tag it hurry order rush, or then they would just shorten it to H O R, and somehow that got associated with this receiver project. And people started calling it the HR, HOR project. And then they decided that they would use that for the name of the receiver. But, of course, from a marketing perspective ooh, in English, ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh. Hey, you know, I think engineers could be a bit obtuse on this yeah. kind of stuff. But, but even they recognized that calling it the, the whore receiver yeah, was, yeah, was not, yeah, not good. Yeah. So they switched the letters around. And that's how it became the HRO. I thought that was kind of... You, you, you know... I want to just seize on that one minute because I'm totally amazed about the inventiveness and creativity of, of a group of engineers and scientists in that period, 1930, 1940. Uh, uh, yeah, we got a lot of software guys that have come up with amazing things. But these guys didn't have computers. <laughs> you know, they had slide rules. Have you ever heard the story of the Jeep, how the Jeep was built? I, I, one time, I think a little bit. Anyway, the the government realized things were getting hot hot in the world, and they needed a general purpose vehicle, a GP, a general purpose vehicle. So that's that got slanged into Jeep. But the winning company, the company that won the competition, designed and built it over a weekend. Wow! In Pennsylvania, a little company, and and the and the government was so taken with this, but they said this is a little company. <laughs> So they took their design and went to General Motors and Ford and said, start building these things. I mean, the company kind of got screwed, but it was their yeah. idea. And and the one of the things was four people ought to be able to lift this vehicle out of the ditch. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. think of some guys in a room with slide rolls, you know, no computers, <laughs> no CNC milling machines. And they, over a weekend, designed this thing. And, I mean, the same thing's... <laughs> happen in the radio world you know they said hey we need a we need a radio to do this and and just amazing and you look at the hro you know 80 years later that thing is a work of art it is i I was looking at a video the other day and one of the things i really like about the hro is the whole concept of plug-in coils and they took basically four coils and put them in kind of a a bank of coils in a little box and there was a, a big kind of hole in the front of the rig. You'd open up these two latches. You'd slide in this tray, and that would put you in a different band of frequencies. And I, I, I've, I've often thought of that as I've played around with kind of plug-in coils and plug-in filters on the Bidex rigs. But it's a, it's a cool way of doing it. And, you know, the, it, the, the idea of plug-in coils had been around in, in regen radios for a long, long time, where you'd reach in and you'd plug in a whole new coil and maybe a you know, coil and a pickup coil. It was probably Millen's ham background that made him think about that. He, he realized he needed something that was a bit more a kind of industrial and you know, systematic. So he came up with these kind of frequency blocks and you'd plug it in. And then they would have like a chart there showing you how with this set of coils, the, uh, the numbers on the HRO dial corresponded to frequencies. But, uh, you know, a very important receiver it was used extensively in the UK. It was all, it was all kinds of... Uh, 
all kinds of uh, important war work done with it. So uh, three, tier, three cheers for James Millen and uh, the national company, the HRO. Uh, great, great stuff. Well, it, let, um, let's not leave that point for a second, and, and I, because I read a little about this. One of the problems they had with the plug-in coils was the coil material is that uh, they spent you know, so most of those are bakelite coils yeah bakelite yeah. coils well they found that that was the most stable material that they could use so that there wouldn't be a change you know you plug in a coil to a certain bandwidth think about the mechanical aspects of plugging that coil set in there and you keep pulling them in and out in and out how can you make sure you're always getting consistent contacts they didn't have lasers right. to line that right. stuff this had to be built on a line so someone had to pay attention about the wear that you'd have plugging the coils in and out, the alignment of the pins. You know, guys just jam that stuff in there. How do you make sure they didn't break a pin off right in the middle of the radio? There was a lot of engineering that went into that. I mean, smart yeah. guys looked at the me- – a lot of the radios were mechanical. There was a heavy emphasis on the mechanical aspects, not just necessarily the electrical, because these things had to be changed in the field or in the, you know, somewhere different in the laboratory where you just hit, hit a band switch. They were actually – plugging physical units in there so the tolerancing and everything else i mean i sit here amazed thinking 1930s wow you know great stuff i mean and you know here we are we were i'm still you know i'm having a little bit of trouble with it but i'm still using the the the, the gear the gearbox yeah. for one of these things yeah uh you know just just terrific terrific stuff uh, related to this is kind of interesting and when i when i first when I was reading the reading up on the oscillators and the words of wisdom and the tribal knowledge about the oscillators, one point that Doug Dumas often makes is that it's important to carefully select your main tuning capacitor in a VFO. Um, and he always recommended brass, I guess brass or brass, yeah, brass, uh, um, a capacitor with brass or brass or bronze, what do you think? Would brass. Be? With brass, yeah. Brass uh, veins and, and, and rotors and stators. And the only one I had around that was like that came out of this old 1930s era regen receiver that I picked up over in the UK. You'll recall it a while back, it kind of seized up on me and I couldn't get it to spin. Well, I think the radio gods were at work here, but because right as I was reaching the point where I was looking for a cap for this new VFO, I kind of played with it a little bit. I guess it had been soaking in WD-40 for a long time and it became unstuck. So I figured, aha. The radio guides have spoken. I'll just pop this thing in there. It'll add kind of a, an additional cool 1930s yeah. element to it. It's brass. It'll be more stable. And I put it in there. It was about it's about the right size. It was roughly uh, 100, 120 picofarads at peak um, at max. But I put it in there, and you know, and it really, it, it, it I could tell that it wasn't going to help with stability. And I think the the second kind of rule of thumb that that Demar always uh, mentioned when talking about selection of components for VFOs was that he wants a bearing at both ends of the capacitor. Yes. And this thing, you could tell, I mean, it was built, it was a an old, very old made in England part, but it, obviously they were building it for economy and they were probably building for the AM broadcast band. They weren't that concerned about stability. So it, the, the, uh, the rotors were just kind of hanging off in space. There was one connection to the front panel, but they were kind of hanging out there. And you could just see that it would be mechanically unstable. If you hit the table a little bit, that whole thing would just jiggle a little bit. And it, so 
I took that out, but that'll that'll be used in another project. But it was kind of cool. And I, I, at one point, I lost the uh, the front panel mounting screw for it, and I was going crazy looking for kind of a U.S. 21st century equivalent that would fit on the threads of this cap that was made in England, you know, 70, 80 years ago. <laughs> and Dexter, our friend Dex, ZL2DEX in New Zealand came in. I sent a picture and he, and he said, oh, you're looking for uh, a, a nut, an Imperial Whitworth. There you go. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that is a really cool English sounding part. Oh, yes. You know, I, I joked. I said I can see myself walking into Home Depot and saying, where are your Imperial Whitworths? It's, it's made in Eddystone. <laughs> in Eddystone? Yeah. Up in northern <laughs> England. Yeah. There you go. Well, anyway, I, I, I was almost given up, and then I realized, wait a second, I probably wouldn't have thrown this thing away. And because it, too, is probably brass, it's going to stand out. So I started looking around, and I realized that it was back up with the uh, the old regen receiver, so I got it. But now, so brass is better, but two bearings are better yet. Oh, so absolutely. There, guess, absolutely. There you go. Hey, uh, let's see what else we're going to talk about. Oh, you mentioned brief, briefly my uh, you know uh, flirtation with the S38E. I know, I know. Uh, you know, I, I did the restringing job on it. I think we talked about that last time. You convinced me to do it. I did it. I got it working. Okay, fine. So I think I've really gone the extra mile. But, you know, Pete, I listen sometimes on Saturday morning before we start the podcast. Sometimes here on the East Coast, there's this really great group that meets on 75-meter AM starting at about 5 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. It's called the Old Military Radio Net. They're a great bunch of guys. They get together, and they, 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 most of them are using old military radios, war surplus stuff. And, but a lot of them are using, you know, more, you know, 1950s, 1960s era commercial boat anchor gear. But it's a very knowledgeable bunch of, of technically oriented hams, and they get on. And about, I guess about a week or two ago, I'm sitting here listening to it. It's playing in the background. And all of a sudden, I hear a ham, N3XON. Uh, one of the one of the regulars on the net, and he's talking about, and I, I'm I, I kind of walk in in the middle of the conversation, but he's like, "Well, I'm I've decided I'm going to get rid of this thing before it kills me," <laughs> <laughs> and he starts describing the problems, and it, it sounds a lot like my tale of woe. So I'm not sure he was talking about an S thirty eight E, but I suspect he was. I, I sent him an email. I don't know if he got it, but if anybody knows him, tell him. You know, I hear him, and he and he he helped, he helped convince me that uh, that I got to get off this S thirty AD kick. So anyway, that we're we're off that thing. I think the radio gods have spoken. Hey, one thing I want to do, I want to introduce a new segment to today's show. We don't, we're, we're getting kind of close to, to time here, but instead of a bench report, also we should talk about contact report because yeah. I think you you've had you've been on the air with some of these rigs, oh. and you've had some pretty cool contacts. Oh, cool. But before you do that, shameless commerce division. Oh, man, that's right. Thanks. Thank you, Pete. Always thinking about practical matters. Uh, you know, the, again, uh, Shameless Commerce Division here at, uh, at Solder Smoke. Really appreciate everybody who has uh, been using the, uh, the Amazon shopping box there on the, on the Solder Smoke blog. Just check out the Solder Smoke blog. Uh, in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little search box for, uh, for Amazon. And begin your search there. Everything else proceeds normally, and as a result of using that box, cha-ching, Bezos and company sends us uh, a small percentage of the total sale. doesn't cost you anything. doesn't cost me anything. I get some money. 
We use it for solder smoke purposes. Pamela. And we got, yeah, we got to buy some new software because the software is driving me nuts. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I really appreciate you guys doing that. And um, and uh, so uh, I guess that's the end of the Shameless Commerce right. Division. Okay. Thanks. You want to talk about context? Yeah. You know, the thing that's kind of interesting, Bill, is uh, almost exclusively um, – I have a choice of a lot of radios. Uh, I mean, I can I can put the Drake on, the Collins, or put the Tentec, but most of the contacts I make are with homebrew rigs. And it's amazing how many people will say, "Oh, you're on a homebrew transceiver. What what kit is it?" You know. And yeah. so uh, I I think of anything. Um, and then what 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 I also find is a lot of times you talk to people they're They've, they've got you plugged in right on qrz.com. You know, they'll pull up your call sign, and I'll say, go down to the middle of the page and look for the blue radio. <laughs> I do. It's kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> and that's the one I'm using. And so the thing is, it's really nice to be able to get on the air. And I find that actually because I'm, I'm not spending as much time soldering hardware that I'm actually getting on the air. I mean, I'm actually making contacts with some of these radios. You know, what's what was the typical thing in the past is I'd get a radio working and I'd make a lot of contacts. And then I'd look for the next project and, you know, be, be, be busy building that. And pretty soon you got a room full of radios, but you're not making many contacts. And it's really a lot of fun because um, every once in a while you'll run into somebody and I can tell – this guy the other day was using an FTDX 400, and I could tell he was using it. And the reason was not there was anything bad about it, but my frequency readout <laughs> was better than his. In other <laughs> words, he was using an analog dial on 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 the issue FTDX 400, and he probably thought he had it right on 7200, but it but it wasn't. So the the thing is is that I, I really enjoy being able. I said, okay, we're we're talking a little old technology. This is 1960s, 1970s, old quote old technology, and something that's that's today. So that's still a 40 year span. So I, I'm really enjoying talking to people, and not everybody is necessarily running a flex radio. So uh, I I think that's kind of nice. Now the bands are kind of stinko in the higher frequencies. So a lot of the operations is 40 meters and I'm getting the chance to meet, you know, kind of like, uh, right around the LA area, Nevada, Arizona, and there's, uh, some really nice people. So I, I'm actually enjoying the hobby from a little different perspective, making contacts. <laughs> I mean, I've got lots of people I've been talking to and it's, it's, it's kind of fun. And what's, what's the icing on the cake is I'm using a homebrew rig. I, I I hear you, and that's exactly been my experience here. I'm I haven't been on the air all that much. There's been a lot of stuff going on, and you know, I've been I, there is the time on the workbench. But it, I think it is important to get on the air with these rigs. And I, I'm the same way. I have, I have a bunch of different rigs here that I could put on, but I'm always almost always on with the homebrew rigs. And I I have just in the last month or so had some some really great contacts. I got on uh, on forty, and I heard some guys some technical talk going on. And I just, it was W4OP, Dale Parfit. Oh, yeah, Dale, yeah. Yeah, and he was he was on with a restored Swan 240. Yeah. It sounded great. And I had to run, and he had to run. I wish we had more time, but I got on there, and I, I called Dale, and um, it was just fantastic. We had this great, great contact, and I told him that I had been working on the receiver that he had oh, yeah, yeah. put together, the bare bones, super head. And, wow, what a, what a pleasure talking talking to Dale. That was I think that was on... 
on 20. Then a little while later, I got on uh, on 20 meters and I was having a contact. I was on the BIDX and N6ORS called in. And he was like, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you could tell what you, just before you recognize the call, there's kind of excitement in the other guy's voice. And I said, is something going to be special? He says some reason that he really wants to talk to me. And he came back and, and I was, it was kind of, there was a little bit of QSB at that point. He was kind of coming in and out, but I heard him say that, that he asked about my BIDX and said he was on his Minex. Yeah. So this was a, a homebrew to homebrew contact, I think number six for me. And we had a, a really great contact. This was the rig that it's a combination of the Minima and the Bidex. I have uh, pictures of his rig up on the, uh, on the nice, QRZ.com nice page. Radio, yeah. Really, really nice and, and kind of really innovative mix of, uh, of technology there. Then um, August 2nd, just a few days ago, I get on 40. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm sure you know what I mean. Sometimes you, if you get into a contact with a guy who's, who's running, you know, uh, an SDR rig or, or one of the Yesu ICOM rigs, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad sometimes because you really, you get to the point where there's nothing, there's not much to talk about anymore because if you, if you, you kind of give an opening, you say, well, I'm running the homebrew rig. And then if the guy comes back and says, oh, look, I, I don't, I don't know anything about electronics. And I've had them say oh, yeah. that. And, and, and then, but then also like an indication that they don't want to either. That's not my thing. I know I wouldn't like that. Well, okay. I mean, to each his own, but it, it sort of puts a damper on the conversation. I mean, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to say? Hey, how about those red skins? Yeah, you know, or, right. It's raining here. Is it raining there? Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So those conversations, you know, you try to be nice and there are nice people out there. And sometimes you talk about different things. That's fine. But, uh, usually those, co those contacts don't last that long, but then to save the day on the 2nd of August, uh, Mark K3 MRK up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania came in and he said he was a solder smoke listener and that he has been receiving some, uh, some assistance and mentorship from Steve Snort Rosin Smith. Yeah. Down the road was, here. Down the wow. road. That's I, I was in the presence of greatness. Holy cow. This was great. Good to talk to Mark. And we talked about the the rig and everything else. And then right after that, the guy you mentioned, Mike from the miracle mile, WA three O. Yes. We, we, we talked on the air about your efforts, <laughs> your teenage efforts, Pete, <laughs> to attract young ladies and, and impress them with your uh, mobile Benton Not Harbor lunchbox. lunchbox. Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, <laughs> I mean, whatever works. <laughs> yeah, but that wouldn't work. <laughs> Well, somehow you'd say, you know, it's the blending of all worlds, you know, ham radio and chasing girls. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess maybe way back then, maybe it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was something to it. Definitely wouldn't do it today. I'm telling uh, you, no, no. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Mike and I, uh, Mike was the guy who sent me at the HW7. Yeah. I have the HW7. Oh, we had, we had a great contact. That, that was, that was, that was really good. And here, this is the thing that I really loved about this contact. Again, when Mike called, there was that kind of element of excitement in his voice. And he said to me, I heard you when I was over on the bench fooling around tuning a direct conversion receiver. And so he says he's, he's there playing around with the direct conversion receiver. You know how it is when you're getting a receiver going, you're kind of peeking and tweaking and stuff, and you, you look for a signal. The signal he found was mine. So he quicks turns that off and goes back over and fires up the commercial rig. 
and comes on and we had a great contact. We talked about, you know, we talked about you, we talked about the podcast, uh, home brewing, and it was just great. So they're back to back, two contacts with Solder Smoke uh, listeners. Um, really fantastic. Then a couple of days later I get on and I, I get a call from W1VLF, Ooh. very low frequency. Ooh. Wow, Paul. And we start talking about homebrew and everything else. And, wow, here's a guy who has something to talk about. And he's been conducting experiments. Um, he's got a, a, a special license. He's, uh, he's building rigs for the, get this, 10 kilohertz range. Wow. 10 kilohertz. Put on your audio amp and have a QSO, oh, right? Yeah. I, I said, you're pretty close to D.C. there. And, and, and there's some pictures that I'll, I'll put them up on the blog of the coils that he has to wind to get anywhere close to a resonant frequency at, at 10 kilohertz. And he's, he, he, has been, he has had a signal detected, he said, at five miles. So uh, really, really interesting stuff. So um, well, you go just a little higher in frequency to 24 kilohertz, and that's what they use with the submarines. Yeah, well, you, could, you could work work all submarines. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> WAS, <laughs> WAS, sure. work all I'm submarines. Sure they, I'm sure they wouldn't exactly be delighted, but uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, good QSOs, Pete. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. They're out there. So but, get on the air. Yeah, but, get on the air. By the way, Mike uh, has a, a great. Uh, skill at finding uh, new radios and uh, he shared with me um, in our email exchange when you told me about the QSO he's, he's re- he uh, has a new radio from Hobby PC and it's uh, an SDR radio and it's got a nano in it, uh, arguing a nano but you do need an external computer and uh, this is like a, a $200 kit it's a 5 watt radio and I and I and I think the thing that's significant is not not the fact that it's a kit, but now this is putting things in the price range because of the technology and because of the availability of the parts. I mean, this cost is coming down. I mean, somewhere in a shop somewhere, someone's got the hundred dollar SDR radio that you put together. As a matter of fact, it's assembled. You don't even you don't even solder this thing. So two hundred bucks, you get a, a whole radio. So it's just Every day there's something new. I, I was unaware of it. I looked it up on the on the internet. And a uh, hobby PC also has a um, kind of a pricey uh, linear amplifier kit. Uh, I think it's 50 watts, something like that, and it's got a digital display on it and everything. So it's interesting to see. But who ever heard of hobby PC? I, I I never did. I mean, when Mike shared that with me, that was the first time I heard of it. So there's there's lots of people out there that are building hardware for for ham radio so it's kind of nice to see all right great all right pete now we're at the time i'm, I'm gonna get going because elisa and i are going to go to the to the to the farmer's market here in a few Ooh. minutes but it's time for mailbag yeah i'll have to go through it kind of quick we're in almost in overtime but uh i got some nice mail from uh from walter af5 wh in dallas the the color burst liberation army oh, dallas yeah. chapter yeah. has has been opened and we have pictures up on the uh on the blog of the group build of the Michigan Mighty Might that they did. Very fine. Bob Crane, uh, W8SX, our correspondent at uh, Dayton, sent us a very provocative, I would say provocative, controversial, destined to stir up the juices of people on the exciting issue issue of conventional current flow versus electron oh, flow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
holes You're are, double E. Are you, are you, are you a conventional oh, guy holes or are you an electron ele guy? Holes and electrons. Holes and electrons. Um, anyway, um, so what are you? Are you a conventional current flow uh, guy electron, or are you an electron? Electron. I'm an, I'm an, of course, I'm an electron. Yeah, actually. electron. Holes and Let's electrons. Live the, let's live in the real world. Yeah, holes and electrons. We got to move those arrows around. Yeah. They've all got to be changed. Yeah. I'm sorry. It just it has to be done. <laughs> uh, Steve N8NM Ooh. sent us a great picture on the 60 meter plank rig. Planker. A planker. Yeah. Uh, on the board. I mean, looking good. Yeah. All kinds of eclectic technology. Yeah. All kinds of great stuff. Yeah. Thanks for sending that, Steve. Um, we got an email from a guy, Jerry. I didn't get a call sign. But he starts out by saying, Bill, I regret ever having listened to your podcast <laughs> because it has sent me down a rabbit hole of solder melting, toroid winding, and project building. There you go. There you go. I mean, we have a warning posted. You know, you, should, yeah. you didn't, didn't heed the warning, and, and there you are. You know, it's not our fault that you have the knack, Jerry. You just do. It's just, you know, well, anyway, uh, thanks for that, Jerry. We got a, an email from a guy who was asking for what should he do for an almost all digital electronic LC meter now that almost all digital electronics is is kind of kind of out of it since the uh, the owner operator passed away, and we've got a lot of recommendations for these online uh, Chinese kind of uh, LCR meters, and one that was recommended by by Chris is an M4070 from eBay. He said he's been using it; he's paid fifty bucks for it. Works great. So I think the conclusion, and I, I know you had some thoughts on this too, is don't necessarily write off those uh, those Chinese products. No, no. You, I mean, they're not all good, yeah, but a yeah, lot of them just, are. Just, you know, use your head a bit. Yeah, and look around for recommendations. Usually they have people who've, you know, written in saying that they've got it to work and that was good. And then finally, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to mention uh, there's a, a hand by, uh, I'm don't know his name, but it's called K3JLS. K3JLS. He is building the DFD2 um, digital display for Heathkit. So he reversed engineered the almost all digital electronics display that's used with the Heathkit gear, and he's now selling that as a kit. I have no interest in the company, but I just saw something on the Heathkit reflector today. Wow. So if someone has some Heath gear and they wanted to put the uh, kind of like I did with the HW101, Remember, I put the digital display. Oh, yeah, that that's, was, the, that that, cool. that's the DFD2. So someone is sourcing those now, has a kit, and that's K3JLS. Pete, I just had a thought. That that HW101? Yeah. Blue. Blue, yeah. Blue. Yeah. Turn it blue. Yes. yes. Everybody chant. Blue. blue. Oh, blue. that case blue. will look cool because it's got the great light front oh, panel. Man. Oh, yeah. Already got the blue dial in. Yeah, yeah. Out. All right, my friends. There we go. The first first ever blue HW101. Hey, Pete. I felt bad at the beginning that I that I kind of held you back from proclaiming the number of the podcast. So as we close, why don't you just say what 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 number are we at today? Pete? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> hey, I gotta go walk the dog. Yeah, you bet. Take take care. Have a great week, Bill. Thanks yeah, a lot, Pete. Okay, we'll see you. Bye bye. Seven three from Northern Virginia. Seven threes from the left coast. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop 
somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi! Thank you.